Well, tonight our passage is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. This is the uh, this will take us to the end of chapter 4. We have one chapter left in the book of 1 Peter. And uh, no surprise, Peter's going to talk about suffering. So, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses, uh, verses 12 uh, through 19. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we've essentially entered the home stretch here on Peter's teaching on suffering in his letter. And this is where Peter is going to get really personal about suffering. He's been applying the Christian response to suffering uh, in in social terms from uh, our relationship to the government, uh, to the life of the church, even marriage relationship. Here, Peter turns to what we might call the existential, the, the, the internal aspect of suffering. And this is important because people are often honestly surprised by suffering when it comes into their lives. Especially as Americans, we are a pretty optimistic people who believe that if we just dig in and hold on and work hard, we can make it through most things. And there certainly is a lot of truth to that, and part of what makes our country great, in my opinion. But when you, but when you get hit with serious suffering, whether it's a sudden diagnosis or more like what Peter's audience is probably dealing with in terms of persecution and intense opposition, it can really shake you up. Many of us have known people who have gone to church for years even, and then something really awful happens in their life, and it shakes them to the very core to the point where they even have walked away from the faith because they just cannot deal with a God who would allow this to happen to them in their lives. And so, uh, and so Peter's going to help us tonight by teaching us how we should approach suffering. He's going to help us in clarifying the definition of Christian suffering and help us to better understand the context of our suffering. And we'll look at each of those tonight. So first, in verses 12 to 13, we're going to look at how Christians ought to approach suffering. So the first point here, and maybe the most uh, important point tonight, is Peter wants us to learn to expect trials in verse 12. Learn to expect trials. Note that Peter, in speaking to people who are suffering for Jesus, he first calls them 
beloved. They are loved by God. They are loved by Peter himself. He's not wagging his finger at them. He's not coldly telling them that they should just get over it or to go on and smile for Jesus in their pain. He says to his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ that we should not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us. And that word fiery trial reveals that Peter knows what kind of trial that they're in. And that word, actually, that fiery trial comes from one Greek word that, uh, that, that actually takes us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 7, where Peter described uh, their persecution as a furnace for their faith. It's a word that literally means the process of burning, or metaphorically, the intense feeling of a painful experience. Peter understands that these believers are feeling the heat the danger, the pain that goes with being in a furnace. Yet Peter says that we shouldn't act as though something foreign or alien were occurring in our lives. Being surprised, now, so being surprised by suffering here, it's, it's not, um, it's, he's not talking about being surprised by the suddenness of it or the unexpected circumstances of entering into suffering. You know, it's like I ironed my shirt this morning. If I touched the iron, you know, I shouldn't have been like, well, I should have expected that because Peter told me to expect the fiery trial. I should not be surprised that I touched the hot iron. So I was wrong to wrench my hand back in pain, right? Like that's not what he's saying. And that's not what he's talking about. So there's a different kind of surprise, some different kind of shock. It's more of a shock that we are expected to endure something painful or hard. It's, it's a shock that reveals a false understanding of God and the gospel. And in time, it's, it's, a, it's a way of believing in God, honestly, that leads to bitterness and resentment. Because how could God let me go through this? How could God allow this to come into my life? And, and because Peter says, why has this trial come upon you? Well, he says there's a purpose to it. It has come upon you to test you. That testing is the testing of a blacksmith who takes the metal out and tests it. He puts it back into the fire. He is putting it into a process of removing the impurities from the metal to make it stronger. And so when this trial comes upon us, it does two things. It reveals our character, both the good and the bad. Secondly, the response of faith, the response of the believer in the time of testing is to have one's faith purified and strengthened. But the problem is that just sounds really easy when the pastor says it on Sunday night in the sermon. But we know it isn't easy. Peter knows it's not easy. This is the man who says these words to suffering Christians, who himself has suffered already for the sake of Christ, who himself will be lifted up on a cross upside down, because he refused to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. So this is a man who knows suffering and whose life will end in suffering. So this isn't some like, you know, guy in an ivory tower telling, telling people to go and be well, right? And so Peter says that when we experience suffering, we shouldn't be surprised. Well, what should we do? He says, in fact, we should actually rejoice In our share of Christ's sufferings, because it prepares us for a greater joy. 
verse 13. Now, perhaps the hardest part of what Peter says here is not the don't be surprised part. Perhaps it's the word rejoice. Because, I mean, pessimists are never surprised when something goes bad, right? They're like, just as I expected. I knew it, you know. But Peter says that we ought to rejoice. And I want to be careful here because Peter is not some kind of weird Christian masochist. He doesn't tell us to rejoice in suffering. He doesn't say to rejoice in pain. And and Peter is not, uh, he's not giving here some kind of mental trick to help us when we're doing hard things. Like when I get a shot at the doctor's office and if it's a particularly painful shot, I count to 10. I look away and I count to 10 and it's usually over, you know, or, or sometimes if I'm working outside and it's just super uncomfortable and I'm starting to get a bad attitude, I just go, this is just how I like it. This is just how I like it. You know, it's like, but that is not what Peter is doing here. All right? He's not teaching us to play mind games. To say something that's really hard and painful is actually really good and enjoyable, and I love it. He's saying specifically that we are re- to rejoice in the degree to which we share in the sufferings of Christ. To sh- rejoice in the degree that we are identifying with Jesus in our sufferings. That is what we are rejoicing in. And unsurprisingly, in suffering, it is Christ who makes the difference. We often think of the apostles in the book of Acts who were beaten by the Jewish leaders for proclaiming that Jesus was the Savior. And the text says that they rejoiced after they were beaten, specifically because they were identified with Jesus and they suffered for him. They rejoiced in their sufferings because they suffered for Christ. And so rejoicing in our share of Christ's sufferings identifies us with Christ in a way that costs us something. It deepens our fellowship with Christ as we follow his own example as the one who suffered for us. Now, Peter doesn't actually focus so much on how we rejoice as as he does here in verse 13 to tell us why we are to take joy in suffering for Jesus. Because he says, suffering for Christ now prepares you for a greater joy when Christ returns in glory. As Jesus said, there is no cost we can pay that will not be repaid to us a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. There is no amount of suffering that will not be rewarded for the sake of Christ. God does not short his servants in repayment or reward. Whatever suffering we endure for the name of Jesus is essentially an investment in the joy to come in the future. And that can give a lot of strength for us if we are suffering today. But this is where Peter comes in next in our second point to help us by clarifying the definition of Christian suffering in verses 14 to 16. So we we need to note here that not all suffering is Christian suffering. And so in verse 14 and verse 16, Peter talks about the suffering that God blesses. And so suffering that is most obviously in view here that God blesses is the persecution of Christians who at this time in Asia Minor or modern day northern Turkey, these are Christians who were experiencing 
public persecution, particularly in the form of public insult and, and attacks and derision and mocking. And so the uh, and the and so the word um, and, and, and it was interesting because, I mean, if you think about this is um, we're still in late first century. But as as the Roman Republic moves from the late first century, like it's already kind of hit its golden age. Um, and so Caesar Augustus was essentially kind of the golden age, the, the Caesar under which Christ was born. After that, the Roman Republic tends to kind of go down. And so it, it takes a long time, but it, it tends to start going down. And so and as it does, emperors come in and a lot of times uh, they would come in and they would want to get on the good side of the Roman gods. And one way to good, you know, one way to do that was to persecute the Christians because these Christians won't sacrifice to the gods. And it was a good way to, you know, to, for the, at least a lot of emperors thought to do this. And so that increased in the second and third uh, um, centuries until at least until Constantine. So, uh, and so these, but these Christians are suffering publicly. And so the word that Peter uses in verse 14 there, um, for being insulted means to reproach or to revile or mock. And Peter says that if you're insulted, if you are verbally abused, viciously mocked for your faith in Christ, then there is something very important that you need to know. And because not only is what Peter said before this true, that you will rejoice in the future and be glad when the glory of Christ is revealed. But he says, not only will you be blessed, but you need to know that if you are insulted for Christ, you are blessed in the eyes of God. Now you are blessed. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And here we may need to be reminded of the blessing it is to have the Holy Spirit Dwelling within the people of God. Uh, you know, having been Christians for years, we may actually begin to forget about what it means to have the Holy Spirit living in us. Or we may begin to take the Holy Spirit for granted. Or maybe we just never were taught on the Holy Spirit, and so we don't really understand. But the Holy Spirit is the one who lives in the people of God, in us, who, who is sealing and securing all the eternal blessings of the gospel to us. It is the Holy Spirit who is the effective cause of our growth in grace, who enables us to rejoice in the midst of our sorrows and our sufferings upon the earth, to be moved to repentance and obedience and faith to God, who stirs our affections for God and deepens our love for Christ. And, and that's just a, just a quick review, and that doesn't even really get into the depth of it. But it is also the power of the Holy Spirit that is renewing us after the image of Christ until the day that renewal reaches our very bodies in the resurrection. And so if we have the Holy Spirit, then we are blessed even in the midst of hurtful and awful insults. In verse 16, Peter reminds the church that if they are attacked like this, that they don't need to be ashamed because of the public scorn the public humiliation they may have suffered. Rather, they are to, to give glory to God, to praise God because they have suffered as Christians. And this matters. That word Christian is, is actually unusual because there's not many uses of it in the New Testament. We use it all the time. 
But in the New Testament, that wasn't. They were the people of the way, <laughs> originally. That's what they called it. And then later, they were called Christians as an insult. It's like how the Puritans were called Puritans as an insult earlier on, and then it became their name. Well, like Christians, that was an insult. But the church owned it. And they said, yeah, we would love to be associated with Christ. Thank you very much. We shall be Christians. And, and, so, uh, and so to suffer for Jesus is to be identified with him publicly. It is to suffer for being identified with the family name. This week at Al Mohler, uh, the uh, um, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, shared a story from his town there in, in Louisville. Uh, there's a Christian private school there. And uh, the private school had given out a private Christian school. Okay? And so they gave out an assignment to their middle school students to write a letter to a hypothetical friend who is openly gay. And, and the instructions of this assignment were to, uh, to communicate the truth of the scriptures about homosexuality, but in a way that was compassionate and loving and that affirmed their love for their friend while at the same time disagreeing with them. Well, uh, and, so, um, and so there was a friend of a parent in the school who claims that their, that this, that the, their friend's child was very upset by this uh, and disturbed and uh, emotionally upset by this assignment. And so they went to the press and, uh, and reported this shocking state of affairs, a Christian school teaching Christian values. From a Christian worldview. Shocking, I know. And so the response is what you would expect. Heaping of scorn and condemnation upon the school. Calling them homophobic and bigots. And that was about the nicest words that you would hear publicly about them. Ironically, you have a lot of people claiming. Interesting, I doubt many of them go to church. But claiming that the true Christian position is one of absolute acceptance of everyone. Even if it requires a rejection of biblical truth. Because for some reason they know authoritatively that's what the Christian position is. And it's why. Because that's what I believe. It's like, well, okay. It's all right. Um, But I want you to think about this this example. These Christians did not um, harangue or shout at their students about homosexuality. They did not demand that their students go find a gay person out on the street and scream fire and brimstone at them. They simply gave an assignment to try to help and mentor middle school students to think through how they would approach a friend of theirs who is openly gay in a way that would affirm biblical truth and at the same time show love for their friend. And for this, they were attacked. And they continue to be attacked. I mean, this is a good example of how in our current culture, we can expect to suffer for Christ in America. But it's not just here. It was reporting this morning that missionaries that we know in India, uh, one of the missionary families there is being forced to leave India for no other crime than the fact that they are associated with a Christian church. That they assist with the church, that they help with the church, and for this they are being expelled from the country after nine years of living there. Nine years, no incidents, never broke a law, never did a problem, not taking advantage of anybody, but they're being expelled from the country because simply because they are associated with this church and its ministry. Well, 
a church or a Christian institution that upholds biblical values with compassion, the scriptures say, should not be ashamed. But rather they ought to give glory to God that they are suffering as Christians, knowing that they are blessed now and that in glory they will rejoice still. But Peter also wants to make clear here in verse 15 that not all suffering is blessed. Not all suffering is blessed, even uh, all suffering by Christians. Because Peter says, if you are suffering because you have taken life unlawfully through murder, you have stolen that which is not yours, you have uh, marked the character of your life by evil deeds, or made yourself into a troublemaker, then your suffering is not blessed by God. All right? Um, God does not bless the suffering, the consequences of sin. Now, can God redeem those situations? Absolutely. But, it's, uh, but there's this kind of, um, there's this issue where we see this a lot. Um, well, 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 I'll come back in a minute. So, so uh, you know, a Christian who, in a fit of rage, you know, kills someone and is convicted for the crime is not blessed in that, you know, sentence they get. For their crime. Now, again, in repentance and faith, they can be restored. Absolutely. God can redeem that situation. But in a list of things that he says, he it, it's funny. One, the one that always gets everyone's attention is meddler. <laughs> right. He says, don't if you suffer as a murderer, you know, we're like, we got that, got that. But meddler, like being a nosy Nelly, like, is that what you're talking about? And it's like, yeah, it's it, it's it, it's a mischief maker. A busybody who gets involved in affairs they have no business getting involved in. Uh, you know, sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong. And th- this is important today because th- there's, um, there's, there's two things here. One is a social media problem that there's a lot of times. There's, there's a lot of people who go to church that act online in ways that they would not act in real life. And so, uh, and so they'll say incredibly nasty, mean, and evil things online. And if they and if they get confronted for it, or they get a bunch of you know the same vile stuff spewed back at them, they they you know they wrap themselves up in their self righteousness and say, "I'm being persecuted as a Christian." And it's like, well, no, just because you're a Christian getting flack because of the the horrible stuff you said doesn't mean that you're being persecuted for your faith. Like just because I'm a Christian and I get pulled over by a cop for speeding doesn't mean I'm being persecuted for my faith. Right. So just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean everything I do is an aspect of religious belief and directly. So we have to be careful about that. Um, and, uh, and so this should give us a moment of pause. Because if, if we're facing um, someone who's attacking us verbally and in a way that may we believe may be persecuting us. We need to ask them, we need to ask ourselves, just a moment of self-examination. Have I truly harmed this person in any way? Is there something that I have actually done to them? You know, did I sin against them in some way that has elicited this angry response? Have I done wrong in this relationship? What are they actually attacking me about? What is it? And now in truth, it may be a mixed bag. It just depends on what the relationship is. You know, whenever, whenever, and if that occurs and we realize there is sin on our part, then we need to repent of our sin in that situation and then also be prepared to suffer for Christ. Both two things may be true at the same time, right? 
We may, we may have to confess some sin and say we're fessing up, and we may at the same time be persecuted uh, verbally um, you know, and be mocked for our faith in Christ for it. That may, that, that may, be, that may happen as well. But what is clear is that there is a kind of suffering that God blesses, and there is a kind of suffering that God does not bless. But there's a category of suffering that we haven't really talked about, and the New Testament isn't very explicit on, which is physical sickness or disease. You know, is that suffering? Um, Can you suffer for Jesus? Do do the suffering texts apply to those areas? And now Peter doesn't get directly into that. and, And I think whenever we talk about suffering, we should always be clear Persecution by the enemies against the church and the enemies of Christ is always at the top of the list, right? That is at the forefront of the list. So we need to remember that when we think about um, suffering. Uh, and, but I do believe that there is a way to suffer disease and physical hardship that honors Christ. That in a way we can suffer for Christ in, uh, what, in our diagnosis, in our cancer or whatever where our affliction may be, whatever the medical condition we're experiencing. There is a way to suffer well for the sake of Christ. And that you can say, I am suffering for Jesus in this physical hardship that I am in. And, and, that, uh, and that these things do apply to us. That we are blessed as we suffer for Christ. That we will be blessed in the glory uh, that is to be revealed. But Peter concludes this section here by helping us to better understand the context of Suffering in verses 17 to 19. Because the question comes is how do we get into this kind of mindset? How do we move our, our understanding of suffering so we can uh, suffer as a Christian? Well, Peter says that one big important component, he's brought it up a couple of times already in this chapter, but one big important that, uh, fact that helps us in our understanding of enduring suffering rightly is that the judgment of God is coming. And he gets into this in verses 17 and 18. And where does the judgment of God begin, does Peter say? The household of God. That is the church. And now if you want some Old Testament examples of this, there's Ezekiel chapter 9, Jeremiah 25, Amos 3. I'm just going to warn you, they're very bloody. Where God starts in his household and he says, get the swords out. All right. Uh, But this doesn't uh, mean that Peter's not saying here that for judgment to begin the household of God means that salvation can be lost. It does mean that judgment will come revealing God's approval and God's discipline for his church. There certainly will be in the end the revelation and separation of true and false believers in the visible church. But Peter's point is that if the judgment of God comes and if it begins with the church who will be rewarded and disciplined by God, then we need to consider the fate of those who do not obey the gospel. Those who hate the gospel and the God who gives it. What is their end? He backs this up with a quote from Proverbs 1131, which highlights the justice of God for the persecutors of the church. And of Christ. And we see and we do see this um, often in the Psalms when uh, especially when you in wisdom literature, when it talks about 
Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And so you'll see that often in there. And, um, and then the psalmist will say, um, you know, I, I was, this was really getting to me and really bothering me and really tearing me up until I went to the temple, I went to the sanctuary, and I saw the end of the wicked. Basically, I perceived the judgment of God that was to come. And then it didn't seem such a good idea for me to be prosperous like the wicked anymore. I wasn't envious of the prosperous wicked anymore because I could see the fire that awaits them. I would rather endure the fire that lasts for a moment in this life and the glory that is to come than to live in comfort as a wicked person and endure the fire of eternity in the judgment of God. And so verse nine, this leads us to verse 19 in which Peter kind of wraps all of it up by, by teaching us how to suffer well. Peter concludes uh, this section with a single line of profound importance regarding our suffering as Christians. He says that we need to do three things to suffer well as Christians. First, we need to recognize that suffering comes as part of God's holy will for us. That is, God is not surprised or shocked like we are about suffering, which is yet another reason that we do not need to be surprised about the fiery trial. Whatever we may be going through, we need to know that God is never out of control. Now, this may raise some difficult questions for us, uh, but um, I always ask, would you prefer a God who makes mistakes? Would you prefer a God who didn't see it coming? A God who said, oops, I wasn't paying attention. Or our God who is helpless. I wish I could help you, but I just my hands were tied by the devil. I don't know. Which God do you prefer? And so each one has thorny questions. I'll take the sovereign God who is in control. The sovereign God who can redeem my suffering. The sovereign God who has even appointed the most painful and hard things in my life for the good and glory of his name and of my soul in Jesus Christ. Second, he says, in light of God's sovereignty over suffering, he says that we need to entrust our souls to our faithful creator. Here, he's almost kind of channeling the entire point of the book of Job in a single phrase. Trust your creator. Because that's God's answer to Job. Job says, why? God says, trust me, I made everything. And I deserve your trust. And in the end, Job covered his mouth, repented of the uh, things that he had said about God, and entrusted himself to the God who made the world and sustains the world, who can hold the stars in his hands. We also follow the example of Jesus, who, as Peter said in chapter 2, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus does not call us to do more than he has himself done. When he calls us to suffer for him. And third, Peter says, we entrust ourselves to our sovereign creator and redeemer as we continue to 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 do good to those around us. And as Jesus teaches us, and as we may be at pain, be pained to be reminded of at times, this includes our persecutors for whom Jesus taught us to pray to love, and to do good for. So uh, 22 years ago, in the year 2000, I was graduating high school. 
There was a Christian group that was banned over at Tufts University College uh, and by the student council. They had, the student council had a sudden late night uh, meeting that they didn't invite anybody to and banned this Christian group from campus because they had barred from their leadership uh, a, um, a, a, a lesbian. And then they said, look, she's, she's welcome to come to the meetings to be part of the group, but she cannot hold leadership because we affirm a biblical sexual ethic. And so she's not allowed to take leadership. And so she was um, barred uh, from that position. So they booted her out. And Well, they didn't boot her out. They just wouldn't allow her to take a position. So they booted the group out. Well, so they, uh, so they, they actually called a, a Christian lawyer who specializes in defending uh, First Amendment rights, who himself was a Christian. And so he came and was assisting them. And, and so they appealed the decision and they were, and they were going to go, uh, and they were gonna go, to, um, go to it. So a leader and a couple, three of the leaders and a, and a witness uh, went, uh, went to go to the council, the, the student council. The rest of the group stayed behind at the group meeting place to pray. And as they went along, there were angry protesters that were standing there. They went inside. They had turned the lights off. Um, The activists had turned the lights off and were standing there with candles, staring at them um, and uh, and breathing threats at them as they're walking down the hallway. And then when they got to the door, uh, the student council wouldn't let them in and wanted them to sit outside with these angry activists all around them. And then they went in. And then there was a long litany of false allegations that were laid against the leaders. And so then the leaders finally got a chance to speak. And the president of the club got up and um, in tears um, declared their love for their enemies. They had no hatred, bitterness, or anger for anyone in the hall, for the people, for the council who were clearly set against them. and uh, But that they... Uh, but that they believed in Christ, they believed in the, in the Bible, they believed in, uh, in, in that this was their faith and they had a right to it because of the Constitution and that they deserved to be on campus. It was an important voice that needed to be on campus. And then one after another, the three leaders got up and did the same thing. And by the time it was done, it, it, uh, you could see it just a visual change over the student council. And the student council voted unanimously to let the group stay. Um, and even going so far as to saying it, what, that they had an important voice to have upon the campus. This obviously enraged the activists that were outside. But even then, this is how, this is how the group responded. Now, this, is, this story has a good ending, right? There are other campus stories that did not have good endings, where they barred the, camp, they barred the group anyway. I think it happened over at Vanderbilt, um, as, uh, where they just kicked them off anyway. And they said, no, you're a bunch of bigots. We don't like it. And so not every story has a good ending. But as Christians, we have to remember that our, our Savior told us that we were going to suffer, to expect hardship and suffering. And that even as Americans, we will experience that to some degree. Although clearly, you know, we don't expect to have our lives threatened. But, but in time, we don't know what, what lays down the road. But we do know that the judgment of God, the glory of Christ, and the sovereignty of God give us a healthy framework within which to comprehend our sufferings as Christians. That this prevents us from bitterness, from violating the commands that our, our Lord gave us that to not hate our enemies, but to love them. And to not hate God and shake our fist at Him, but to love Him. And so let us be careful that we are, are not suffering as a result of our own sins. When we do, let us repent of them 
and let God redeem our failings. But when we are suffering for Christ, when we are suffering as Christians, let us rejoice, not in the pain, not in the suffering itself, but to rejoice that in our suffering we are identifying with Christ our Savior, that we are blessed and that we will be blessed in glory. We have the Spirit of God in us and nothing can rob us of our glorious inheritance. And so therefore, if we suffer, let us entrust ourselves to God, trust in His will, and commit to doing good to everyone around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have an example in Christ. We have instructions in the Scriptures. We have examples from the Apostles. And Father, we, ought, we confess that we are often surprised by suffering. We often have questions that begin with, how could you allow this in our lives? And Lord, you are kind to us. You welcome those questions in. You do not reject us when we come to you with our confusion, our bewilderment. But we thank you for Peter, who reminds us not to be bewildered, to expect trials, to expect suffering, to rejoice and our sufferings for the name of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that in whatever way we suffer, that we would suffer for Jesus, that we would rejoice in Christ, even in our suffering, that you, re- that you would, in this way, redeem our sufferings, strengthen our faith, and prepare us for the greatest joy, which is being with Jesus in glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.